Live Sound Bootcamp, brought to you by Rational Acoustics, developer of Smart, the industry's leading sound system measurement and optimization platform. Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. I'm Joe Santarpia, along with my high SPL cohorts, Ryan John and Brandon Draper. ISVL cohorts. <laughs> yeah, which isn't actually a good thing, so I'm sorry in advance. Look, look, for... how many words did you look up before you decided cohorts was the right one to I, use? I, I'm getting on the definition tip. I'm tired of I'm tired of wondering. I want to know. So. so so, speaking of definitions, what are we talking about today? We're talking today about impact and loudness <laughs> and the differences and how to, how to achieve, you know, those things. And, uh, yeah. Just turn it out. It's be great. How to be A plus in loudness and how, impact. How to be, yeah. How to be high impact without necessarily being high SPL. Okay. Okay. Like you so guys. Loud. You keep, you keep yeah, saying but... all these terms, man. You keep saying all these terms. I know. Let's get into it. Let, right. let's, let's get into it. So okay. what is SPL? Sound pressure level. We're talking cool. About, we're Next tra- word. Yeah. yeah. Continue. <laughs> Continue. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. It's quite literally an acronym. Um, no, th- this is um, this is we're talking about the measurable aspects of volume or loudness or whatever you want to want to call it here. The the uh, it's a, a measurement to how much air is moving essentially physically. This is the physics right. realm. You yeah, know, uh, sound, sound pressure level is actually about measuring the pressure that is happening in the air that thus hits your ear and thus is perceived as sound. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So. Um, what is loudness? Loudness kind of takes a, a step into humanity. Uh, loudness is, <laughs> is kind of how we perceive uh, SPL and other factors. Um, As defined by Merriam-Webster, right. this oh, is fine. the attribute of sound that determines the magnitude of the auditory sensation produced. And that primarily depends on the amplitude of the sound wave involved. Well, I disagree with you, Merriam-Webster, on the second half there. I think there's a lot more than just the amplitude of the sound wave involved. But, I mean, this aligns with what you're saying, Mr. Definition Guy. (laughs) The definition guy that didn't give us the definition. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this this is about the sensation that comes from that SPL. And and it's about perception, right? It's about what it kind of seems like to the listener, Mm -hmm. right? 100%. Okay. So what about impact? Well, well, what do you think of when you think of impact? You know, you think of like... Um, the sound of a punching bag. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Literally, that's literally what I think of. When, I, when someone goes, oh, this, this has got impact or whatever, I imagine the sound of like, uh, like, like Rocky meat. hitting that meat. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Beating the meat in a cold freezer. Oh, there we go. We he there. had to go there. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, forceful, you know, um, explosive. All those things. Um, it's even more kind of abstract than loudness. So this is like the actual feeling in your body of sound hitting it. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's part how of I it, think right? it. Yeah. Right. That's how I think yeah. of it, right? I think there's a little more to it, but, um, you know, you, you could get quite literal and you could say, you know, impact is how it physically feels. And that could be, you know, literal sound pressure 
hitting a body and like actually feeling like a kick drum's hitting you in the chest, right? That's that's part of impact. But I think there's a little bit more to it too in terms of um, you know taking advantage of the perception of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you know impact doesn't have to physically feel like anything, but it could be just a difference in I don't know maybe maybe the the verse of a song everything got kind of quiet and then when you hit the chorus everything gets really loud, mm-hmm. thus that difference in volume feels like it has high impact even though you may not have physically felt something right mm-hmm. and yeah. even like listening to a record on headphones that can have impact even though you don't physically feel something in your body but i think we are essentially talking about kind of emulating that physical sensation through sound right yeah yeah absolutely so why why do we need to know this stuff why why is it important i mean it's like, yeah. Be- because we needed another podcast episode and we ran out of good shit to talk about. That's right. This is, this is, the, this is the funk <laughs> This zone. is the tail end. We're, we're at the bottom of the barrel. Just wait till we get to season two, though, you know? It's just going to yeah. be... It's a whole new barrel. Yeah. No, but... <laughs> the, the reason, you know, loudness and impact and SPL are, are, are important because, first of all, they are not directly synonymous with one another. You know, something is not just loud because it is high SPL. There are ways to be loud in other ways, or there are ways to have low SPL while still being loud, or there are ways to have low SPL while still having impact and all that. Right. And all of those are kind of challenges based around some limitations, yeah, right? Exactly. exactly. So like, like, what are some of the limitations? Well, f- first and foremost, I mean, if you ever go on tour or ever work for a venue that has you know, you're, you're at some point you'll experience uh, somewhere that has an SPL limitation. Um, festivals, venues, uh, a lot of places in Europe. You know, you have to work with a very, a relatively quiet uh, limit as far as SPL goes. Yeah, and and the idea there is, you know, there are laws that protect humans. Basically, yeah. human hearing. They don't want to, They don't want to be killing people, right? With with, with physical SPL. You don't want to be causing but, permanent damage to. But there also hearing. may be on an outdoor festival. There may be neighbors within a mile or something, and right. they cannot legally disturb those neighbors. Blah blah blah. So they impose limits of the SPL, and inside of those limits that they impose, there are other factors too. With you know, like waiting time. Things like that. We're not going to get too deep into those. Um, you know, actually, there's a pretty awesome rational acoustics thing about uh, SPL and rational how acoustics. the waiting and time and all that stuff works out. So if you want to go scope that out, I'm pretty sure they have it on their YouTube page or on their, I don't know, go to their website. I don't even know what their website is. <laughs> Probably rationalacoustics.com. <laughs> Joe's checking this out so I don't say something it's really rational, dumb. It's That's rationalacoustics.com. <laughs> it's a good guess. But they've got some really good uh, tools for, you know, kind of, or not tools. Uh, they got some really good education for breaking down, you know, how how this stuff works out, like these SPL limits and how they're measured. Yeah. But so that's one limitation. Um, another limitation that I imagine a heap of you guys have been hitting recently is live streaming, right? When you're doing a live stream, you have a a highest value that you can put out. You cannot just turn up and up and up your live stream because you hit zero dB full scale. Your, you know, streaming uh, mechanism has a maximum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a limitation there. There is a, a maximum you can hit. But you still want to do a live stream with loudness and with impact and all those things. So, you know, it's, it's another limitation. Mm-hmm. What else is there? Uh, you also... Well- yeah, go ahead. Oh, you also got the space you're in, you know? Like if you're in a really reverberant room. Absolutely. You're pumping well, more volume into that. It's just going to start. 
building yeah, on itself. Muck, yeah. Mucking up, the, you know, a lot of spaces, the louder it gets, the worse it gets. Absolutely right. Yeah, that that's a tough one, man. I mean, because I, I remember early in my career, you know, I'd hit some of these rooms where, you know, the, the band on stage hits the snare drum and I'm just like, dear God, this is just too much and yeah. there's not much you can do, right? And inherently, you're like, well, I'm going to turn it up past that. But it doesn't actually get better. No, when you do it, that, it, it just worse. gets worse. Yeah. You know, so that's that's a tough spot to be in, man. It's, yeah. it's really tough. And and honestly, I don't have a good answer for how to deal with that because I'm not sure I've ever really figured it out. Somehow I get around it, but I, I don't actually know what I'm doing that makes it work, you know? Well, every 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 space is different, obviously, but we're, totally. we'll go over some tools that you've got at your disposal to, to try to create impact out of a situation like that. Yeah. So, how, you know, what, what are the basics of an impactful loud mix like joe what 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 are the core elements so it it i feel like it's it, this it's this is a perception thing but it it depends on a number of factors in addition to the, the musical arrangement and stuff like that we're talking about volume and the overall actual spl of the thing obviously that's going to contribute to it a little bit yeah so you you're saying if i actually turn the mix up it, it might have more impact? Absolutely. Wow. You know what I mean? So surprised. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, um, the, the frequency content, you know, your, your hearing is more sensitive to certain frequencies than others. Um, if someone turns up, you know, 2K around, around that zone uh, really loud, um, it might not, you know, register, uh, you know, SPL-wise really, really loud, but it's going to hurt your ears. I guarantee you that. Um, uh, harmonic content. Uh, harmonic content can create the sensation of impact um, and explosiveness. Uh, just general dynamics, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, attack times and release times and compression and stuff like that. They all can kind of create impact. No, I mean th- th- that's 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 all dead on. I mean, it sounds like. And we're are we differentiating between loudness and impact? Right, we're. Calling those two separate things, right? They are they are two separate things, but I think I do think they overlap so much mm-hmm. in in kind of the mannerisms by which you achieve them that you know a lot of the tools you'll use for loudness in general are similar tools you'll use to kind of achieve impact and vice versa. Right. So for the most part, I wouldn't separate loudness from impact in terms of me trying to achieve it as a mix. Does that make sense? But I I could see how a mix could have, you know, high perceived loudness but no impact. Yeah. Or vice versa, low perceived loudness but high impact. Yeah, I feel like it's more likely that if you're get if it has loudness, it's probably going to have some impact cuz it's literally like hitting you harder, I guess. It could be. It could be. So this this kind of jumps into what Joe is just saying. You know, regarding the frequency content of a mix, right? This is, uh, you know, the human ear sensitivity. They it's called the Fletcher-Munson curve. Well, it's not called the Fletcher-Munson curve, but there's a curve that kind of maps this out, called the Fletcher-Munson curve, and it basically shows that. For the most part, and we're we're going to gloss over this because this is a little bit technical. If we get really really into this, for the most part, humans are more sensitive to, you know, the 2 to 3K range. I think that's about where it kind of sits. And everything below that we're less sensitive to, everything above that we're a little bit less sensitive to, and it's a kind of an upside-down bell curve, right? Or actually, I guess that is a right-side-up bell curve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a right-side-up bell curve. Depends which way you Anyways, look at it, right? Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. But the idea there is that if you have, you know, a 
X amount of energy at 2K, we're going to hear it, you know, at at some level of intensity. If you have that same amount of energy at uh, 100 hertz, it will be perceived as quieter. Uh, same amount of energy at, you know, 16K, it'll be perceived as quieter because we just hear more sensitive to that middle range. So, you know, you had just said that, you know, if something is generally perceived as loud, it is also perceived as being impactful. It's not always the case, right? Because you could take a mix that is just kind of generally even overall. And if you start bumping that 2K range where we're really sensitive to, it's going to start seeming louder and louder, but it's not necessarily going to seem like it has more impact. Mm -hmm. And eventually you're going to get to the spot where it literally is just hurting your ears. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not actually making it more impactful in those cases. You know? Yeah, it's, it's like less impact, if anything. It, it makes it brittle sounding. Like a telephone. Like, right. Exa yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's why telephones are designed that way. Right. They're designed to hit us that. in that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and yeah, that, that, you know, that comes down to some evolutionary stuff like, you know, related to human speech and the human ear being optimized to... For, and crying, yeah, babies crying babies. And, yeah, all yeah. that. <laughs> so. so, yeah, we, we've evolved into um, that kind of mess. So... <laughs> Based on our dumb evolution here, how do we get? How do we, how do we take we, advantage of? How it? do we mix ourselves out of this evolutionary <laughs> limit box that we put ourselves in? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to making things generally feel louder, you know, based on this sensitivity, you can make elements in a mix feel a little bit louder or closer mm -hmm. or whatnot by taking that sensitive range and bumping it up. Yeah. So if you want a guitar to sound louder, and this is not to say it's going to sound good or better, but you can take, you know, let's say that 1 to 5K range and bump it up a little bit. It is going to seem louder. And it might actually be louder, too, because you've moved a bunch of the frequency content up in volume. But um, that is like one really, really, really basic method for making things feel a little bit louder. Mm -hmm. Now, can you do that to all elements in your mix? Not if you're doing it with the same frequency range everywhere. It's going to kind of turn into a total mess, right? Right, yeah. But you can find the, uh, you know, this is where we actually haven't jumped on yet. Clarity, right? I don't know if we even said it so far in this podcast. No, no. But when I, when I think of, you know, a loud, impactful mix, I do tend to kind of, clarity somehow seems up there, even though it's not either of those words. But... From a base level for me, when I'm trying to think of how to make something feel loud, um, I'm going to find those little areas of clarity for each instrument that is in my, my mix as a whole. Mm -hmm. So for guitar one, for guitar two, for keyboard one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, keyboard nine, um, you know, all of those That's individual instruments. Dude, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it happens. I feel bad for your back, my guy. Christ. Yeah, I mean, you should feel bad for me. I feel, I don't know. I, never, I, don't, I don't feel bad for you. No need, no need. But, you know, if, if you find those bits in each of those instruments that uh, kind of, like, pushes forward the clarity of that instrument, but also kind of sits in that range where human hearing is, like, a little bit sensitive to, you know, between, like, let's say that 1 and 5K, you can tend to make, or you can tend, you can make each instrument feel reasonably clear while also taking advantage of how our ears perceive loudness and intensity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, where it becomes a problem is if you take all the instruments and bump them all in the same place right, because right. then they're all just sitting on top of each other and it's just going to just going to feel loud which which is i guess maybe good <laughs> but it's going to feel loud and messy <laughs> right right I, I feel like i totally went down a rabbit hole there and i really didn't mean to do that hey you know it's bound to happen at least once so but that's all right cuz we're you know we're good on time 
Um, all right, what are some other what are some other tools? You know, so so basically basically what you were describing was EQ. You know, yeah. that that a, yeah. as as a tool, as a functional tool that you can you know as a mix engineer utilize to create perceived loudness or or take away if if necessary. Totally. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's the most basic of the bunch. It's the it's probably the first one uh, you'll experiment with. It's usually there for you, no matter what you're it, using. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, is it safe to kind of go into the next, maybe most obvious uh, one, which is compression from there? Yeah, yeah, probably. Although, you know what, before we before we jump away from EQ, yeah. you know, this is the, the point I mentioned to you guys earlier before we started recording this. Um, whenever I'm trying to explain to somebody how I feel a balanced mix works, I always compare it to like what pink noise looks like on a meter. Right. right. So if you look at pink noise, it's got equal energy in the low, low mids, high mids, highs, you know, all the way across the spectrum. Right. And if you build your mix so that it measures similar ish to that at the end of having built your mix, what that means is that there's no in like like there's no small band of frequency that's really poking out. Right. Yeah. And what that means is that your actual level for everything is at, at some level and you've filled up all the various frequency spectrums up to that level. Um, I mean, this is this is actually hard to describe without having a visual for it, isn't it? Mm. But if you spread your mix out evenly across the whole frequency spectrum, then your total output level, like as measurable on a meter, is going to be lower than if you have a bunch of stuff sitting on top of each other in a particular frequency range, because those are going to kind of make a, a, a bump, if you will, in mm. the measurable level. Mm -hmm. Again, this is like really weird and kind of hard to describe, but if you spread it out like that, to me, you have kind of optimized the mix for volume and level. Does that make sense? One hundred percent. It it goes to that it, you know along with the concept of like frequency stacking. You know what I mean? Where you right. kind of like are filling in the spectrum with each element um, and giving them their own, like giving them their own little place to shine. You know, and totally. and and, at, and then as a whole, it's it sounds very you know. Ideally, obviously, nothing works all the time in this shit. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, we we got we have to put limits on our discussion. So, uh, yeah, and it, it's gonna it's gonna be big and full anyway. I mean, if you're talking like small room too, you have less ability to do this right because you've got the amps on stage that you don't have any control over. Right, right. They're putting huge peaks, you know, in certain parts of the of the spectrum. That totally, you know, and, and that's that's something to talk about too. You know, uh, in in that scenario. You know, then then you would build that frequency spectrum around it. You know what I mean? Right. You'd, you'd kind of build that peak out of your mix. Exactly. Right? And that's exactly. so sound reinforcement. That's why it's like called one, that, right? Because you're yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but but I guess the the idea there is that if you build your mix so things aren't sitting on top of each other, in theory, you've utilized your sound your 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 whole frequency spectrum as best you can. At which point, you have a better ability to kind of create uh, level, volume, impact. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see that as one of the core elements, kind of before you jump into this kind of, uh, you know, targeting loudness. Like, that needs to be sorted out before you start targeting loudness and impact, yeah. in my opinion. What, you guys you guys agree with me there? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, just like as a topic of discussion, what do you do if, like, two elements have, like, very similar clarity ranges, you know, like two vocals? That are singing at the same time. I mean, do you just like pick compromise, like a, a little high, yeah. a bit of a higher range for the other one to boost with your EQ, or like? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, as Joe said, compromise, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there are there are a few options, right? If you're on a stereo system, you can pan one left, pan one right. You know, you don't have to go hard left, hard right. Sure. But, you know, once you've moved them out of the same set of speakers, they don't fight with each other in the same way. Sure. So that is an option. But otherwise, the option is to kind of, let's let's say both of these vocals, the perfect spot, you know, in the top end for clarity is exactly 3.15K. I don't know why I picked that number. But, That's... you know, for vocal one, you might take, you know, two five to, to three for vocal two you might take three to four or whatever you know and kind of like bump those up a little bit in those areas maybe cut them from one another you know I, I tend to find that if you boost in one area on one instrument you can cut from the other competing instrument and they tend to work reasonably well together and it's not an all the time thing but it does tend to work overall yeah yeah Helpful Why, do, you, do, do you have any other tricks for that kind of thing, Brendan? Um, I think we might get into it more with like the dynamic EQ and like multiband compression when we get there. I feel like that definitely helps when you, you know, have that ability. Definitely. Yeah. You know, you know, one one factor that is is important for me regarding frequency content is that um, not all the inputs coming into my desk are being played all the time, right? So that that's that's an important factor to to pay attention to because if I you know, EQ a guitar based on the, the three other guitar inputs I might have, then it, it may be thinned out a little bit, but when all three are playing, it might, might sound great, right? But yeah. there may be whole portions of the set where it's, it is only one guitar. Do I want that guitar to be all thinned out and, you know, made smaller for the space of these other instruments that aren't even being played? No. Yeah. So, so for me, that's where you know tools like dynamic EQ and multiband come uh, into play, or just automation, mm-hmm. you know, uh, snapshots yeah. and that kind of stuff. So, you know, Joe, let, let's let's move past just the frequency element, though. So you you mentioned compression. Yeah, you know, just shaping transients is is essentially what you're doing to create impact, um, so that things kind of poke out more or less, you know, depending on your needs. Yeah. So effectively, you're taking advantage of like a time element. In order to kind of, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe kind of increase dynamic range. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah for portions, for portions of the signal, you know. For... So, like, g- give me, give me a single example, because I'm in my head. I already think I know what you're going to say. So, so, you know, where where would you use this? Um, if like if you're if you have like a super reverberant room, you know, mm-hmm. in the situation we talked about, and it can't be that loud, but you still want your drums to like have some impact. You can use compression mm-hmm. to kind of make them a little bit, you know. Uh, they're going to resonate a lot in this big room. So you don't need this, like... Uh, you don't need the full... long portion of the sound. Exactly. You don't need the right. sustain of the kick drum at all, you know? So you 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 kind of create this kind of, like, fucked up sounding, you know, pecky, very, very quick hitting, <laughs> you know, little shape. And then the kind of room reverberation fills in um, the remainder of ex- it, yeah. and, and 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 you know together it's it's nice you know and yeah. and and has impact rather than just being like a muddy mess in this big so muddy room. so the way you're doing that is basically putting compressors on a, a few particular drums and setting the attack time pretty slow yeah exactly and then, and and thus the 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 transient of the drum actually pokes through before the compressor grabs on it so what's actually coming through the PA is kind of like almost like kind of pokey yeah, clicking little- sounds. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, like yeah, exactly, just like that. In fact, yeah. I'm gonna sample that. <laughs> Put that uh, on your NPC. Yeah, there you go. And but and then as you said, you know, the room kind of takes on the rest of the tonality of the length of the drum, or maybe the actual sound of the drum itself. Because again, if we're in really reverberant spaces, often we're in smaller rooms, right? So maybe the sound of the drum itself is filling in the rest of that space. Yeah, and sure. all you're trying to do is get this bit of impact, this hit. 
out of the PA itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Brendan, you do something uh, similar? I was going to talk about kind of like the opposite of that, like where you put a compressor on like synths or like your guitar bus or something like that so that you kind of take the edge off it or take the attack off of it. Right. You know, because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise they otherwise they would hurt or sound brittle or something like that. But, or, but kind of softening that attack will make them full and, and big. And like also giving more impact to the drums, which is something I'm always... Mm-hmm usually going for in a mix right, right. i want the the True. kick and the snare to hit hard and if there's like a big trans if they're playing keys or or bass or guitar at the and, exact same moment every time every they time hit, they hit it you know yeah. then it kind of like eats up the space for those in, for the drum instruments so you're, you're kind of picking and choosing the elements that you want to have that snap yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so in this example, you're you're kind of choosing that you want your drums to have that snappy punchiness mm-hmm. to it, and then you're taking that away from other elements, so that you basically have like a relative punchiness, right. where the drums are relatively high punchiness, and as related to the other instruments, those have yeah. Very d- little. Depending yeah. on the situation, I might not be doing so much compression on the drums to get that punchiness, right. like Joe was talking about, but maybe I'm doing more compression on the other elements too. To kind of yeah, soften, soften them up, kind of yeah. like yeah, other other sides of the spectrum. Approach. And you know that that actually leads me into one of the other things you had mentioned when you were talking about the basics of an impactful mix is is the dynamic range and relative volume. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know I've said this on some other podcasts. I, I I say that my my favorite mixes that I've built look like a sausage with a bunch of sp- uh, spikes coming out, of it. <laughs> right? And, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and I say that when when you're looking at the you know the two the track I recorded, yeah. right? Because yeah. All of the, you know, I wouldn't say legato instruments, but all of the non-transient stuff mm-hmm. is all pretty even in level, right? You know, so there's a good amount of compression here and there, you know, on groups or whatever, so that, you know, my bass is relatively controlled. My guitars are relatively controlled. Horns, uh, vocals, whatever. All those things are relatively controlled. And then I've got these spikes poking through that you could see in this waveform that are the the drums, the That's transient so Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> But the idea there is that if you have all of your, I don't know how to really word it, but your instruments that are meant to be kind of sustained, right? The ones that stay on, you know, you hold a guitar chord, you hold a piano chord, all that stuff. Yeah. If all of those are pretty controlled in the middle, the melody stuff, then you can have your really short duration stuff, your transients, your drums and stuff like that totally poke out literally in SPL way higher than a bunch of other things. And, you know, even if you're up against an SPL limit of a measurement, um, those transients, those drum hits are essentially peaks. They're really short peaks, right? And most of the measurements that you get as, as a limit have a time element to it. So it's, it's kind of not, not, not totally, but kind of ignoring those peaks. Right. So if the majority of your mix is built around a slightly lower level, you can push super transient drums up a little bit hotter, and it's going to feel really intense because you have this dynamic range and relative volume difference between the snare hit, the kick hit, and where everything else kind of sits. I love some thunderous drums, I'll tell you. Yeah. Joe, you've never actually been to a show that I've done, have you? I don't think so, and vice versa. Yeah, I've never. How how we even have a podcast together for like a year and change, and like we've never even heard each other mix anything. You know, it's even more fucked up. I saw uh, Brendan the other day for the first time oh, since yeah, we started this thing in person in a parking lot. In a parking Whoa. lot. Oh, you guys like did did a shady yeah, microphone did a trade deal, didn't you? We did a little. 
Yeah, you know. Does so so does he look just as good in person? He's uh he's way hotter than <laughs> I remember, to be honest. <laughs> so Amazing. That's Amazing. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so okay, so we, we kind of dove into a little bit of a volume uh to create impactful mix, frequency content to create impactful mix. I have uh, been to a Ryan John show and it is a very impactful mix, I have to say. Damn. Oh. Oh, good, good. I have actually Thanks. been to a Mac DeMarco show too, so you were probably mixing as well, Joe. Where Treasure was it? Island. I was. Yeah. That's right. Was it? Was it? Was oh, it impactful? Man, I was floored. I was on the ground, just. Oh. <laughs> Basically, he drank too much. Yeah. <laughs> he was literally floored on the ground. I recall the weather not being. Yeah, great it was raining. Day. I went into the uh, VIP and went. Yeah. In the, they had a massage yeah. chair in there, so that's basically where I just hung out. All right, all right. Way to show off, you <laughs> and your VIP access. That's awesome. Um. Uh, so, you know, back yeah. on topic. Go, back go, on topic. <laughs> so, yeah, we yeah. We had harmonics as as a thing that you had oh, brought yeah. up as as something that creates an impactful mix. Tell yeah, me more about this, man. Uh, saturation. You know, when you saturation. Oh God, are we going to define it here? Uh, you can if you want, but you know what? Why don't you define what a harmonic is? Period. A harmonic is essentially if you have a, a, a fundamental frequency, and a harmonic is a multiple of that frequency. Um, you, you often uh, separate into like even or odd, um, as in like a, a multiple of two or multiplied by two, multiplied by three. Those are even and odd. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when you when you start to introduce harmonics to a signal, um, it can kind of create uh, an illusion of fullness because you're actually you're literally adding more frequencies. Back to yeah. what Ryan said about the the you know ultimately going for the curve of pink noise, that's kind of uh, contributing to that. You know, um, if you ha if you have a sine wave and you start introducing tar harmonics to it, it's going to just literally increase more frequencies uh in the spectrum um still like maintaining like the the fundamental is still going to be like the highest level essentially but it's it creates you know thickness and you know yeah. depending on the type of of harmonics and the amount of it you know it could create warmth or it could do wonders for impact you know yeah yeah i mean all those terms they're they're like such hard terms to define you know yeah. thickness and warmth and all that but they do tend to get associated with things like you know second order and third order harmonics right second exactly. order basically being even and third order being essentially odd right um but you know exactly as you described if you have a sine wave let's say it was at 100 hertz right the first harmonic above that would be the multiple of it 200 second would be 300 hertz right and then um well, the second the whatever. second would be two hundred, and the third would be shut up. Okay. Yeah, technically second harmonic. Right. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> but but the idea there is that um, every single instrument is basically a, a pure sine wave somewhere. Yeah. You know the note that they may be playing. That instrument may be playing. That's the root note of it. That is kind of the root, and then all the rest of the harmonics around that root. And they don't, you know, in the context of an instrument, they're not even necessarily always like even multiples. They're all no. sorts of mess of stuff. But yeah. you add all these other harmonics, and that's what creates the sound of a violin or the sound of a guitar or the sound of a piano. Timbre. Yeah. That's so how a synthesizer works, basically. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. So we have tools at our disposal, saturation tools, in order to manipulate uh, and add more harmonics. And it's not even just saturation tools. I mean, you can... 
saturate straight from a preamp itself. You can saturate from a guitar amp itself. Like, yeah. um, you know, a guitar amp, you start turning it up, that speaker starts to overdrive. And that is effectively adding a bunch of harmonics to the original tone. That's exactly what it's doing, yeah. So, I, so go ahead, Joe. I was just saying, a, a distorted guitar is just, you know, uh, the rock guitar sound is essentially just a guitar with a shit ton of, of harmonics. Yeah, and a bunch of them squared off and all sorts of craziness. Take yeah. a pencil, yeah. just stab through the cone in your speaker and play your guitar through it. That's how they create a distortion. And it's going to be great, yeah. Oh, my God. Put a mic on it. <laughs> I was like, where is he going with that? Like, Is he going to say stick a microphone through that hole or like, what? <laughs> Anyways, so saturation. I, I think um, this is also kind of like why people like certain desks, right? Because they saturate in totally. a certain way like people always talk about like oh drive the midas preamps like on the analog yeah. midas test that's like how you get it to sound it good second you know? order harmonics yeah right or, or you know same with you know neve yeah. preamps api preamps. There, there are other elements to slew rates and all sorts of other math that of of, of how preamps re react and all but saturation is probably the, the number one thing that gets talked about so Tell me how you use saturation to, let's say, I don't know, make drums feel more impactful or fuller. Like, what is a common way you do it? Uh, I, I like to put, you know, to put a little bit on the close mics, personally. Kick and snare, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of grit to them, and it can often, you know, make all the difference of it, of being able to achieve impact without necessarily turning, turning it, up it up really fucking loud. Um so when when you do that and you're listening for it, what are you actually listening for? You kind of hear it's well, it's important. It's very important to gain match in these scenarios too. Meaning like a being with like uh, with the effect bypassed so that you you can make an accurate decision and not and not be actually just turning up the volume. Um, but uh, essentially, you know, li you listen to it in the mix and it will elevate it a little bit more. It'll be more clear. It'll be more punchy. Present. Present. Yeah. All, you know, all of those things. Uh, it'll appear louder without actually being higher SPL. But you're not listening for audible distortion, like at least not in an obvious sense. I'm not sometimes? always, but sometimes, shit, man, mm -hmm. I'll distort a snare. I mean, not necessarily so much in live sound, but yeah. like, yeah. Brennan, same thing for you-ish? Yeah, it depends on what I'm doing. I mean, it could either be subtle or it could be heavy. I've done a couple times where I've just like, people want super distorted drums on one song. So yeah, mm -hmm. I just kind of experiment with either, if I can either do the whole drum bus, maybe, or just certain elements and just throw like, you know, whatever I've got on it. Uh, like the PS, was it the PSE? Is yeah. That the plugin? Yeah. That primary source expander. Is that what I'm talking about? No, probably no, not. not that. Probably not, because that. That, that's not that. essentially, uh, you know, fancy gate. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of a different acronym for whatever that distortion plugin is. But, um, yeah, it just depends. But, yeah, just it could either be subtle, and it just gives me, like, a little more pop to it, or, like, a little sizzliness, you know, that's up in the, and, the mm -hmm. higher frequencies. And one thing I definitely wanted to say is that, you know, with saturation specifically, and specifically with, like, you having a heavier hand on it, using it in parallel is super powerful. You know, ma maintaining like a quote, quote unquote, dry channel that's like, you know, the natural sound and then tucking in like a just destroyed, you know, dirty, dirty snare can be really, really awesome, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I will say in general, when you start driving saturation really hard, 
you also tend to be compressing the signal. 100%. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So one thing for me uh, regarding saturation for drums. Yeah. When I, when I think of something sounding super duper intense, um, I think of essentially like speakers on the edge of exploding. Yeah. Right. Like I, I can I can imagine what a guitar amp sounds like when it's like turned all the way up, and you yeah. can kind of hear the speaker itself starting to distort. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a good sound, but like it gives you this feeling of intensity. Like it feels like it is on the edge. Yeah. Right. And if you go back far enough in PA technology, PAs weren't able to be that loud. So when you wanted intensity, you'd be pushing it to the edge, and you could feel it kind of like. Breaking starting up. to kind of break up a little bit, right? So when it comes to drums, like kick and snare, I actually like trying to essentially do that with the drum sound. So when it comes comes out of a PA that is totally capable of reproducing, I don't know, 140 SPL, like insane, insane yeah. Enough uh, to decibel hurt you. levels. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go anywhere near that, but I might want it to feel like that speaker's on the edge because yeah. that's going to feel like intensity. Mm. So... I will often add some saturation to, you know, kicks and snares that makes it kind of feel like it's on the edge of that speaker blowing up, yeah. even though it's not. And that then will feel to everybody like it's on the edge of that speaker blowing up. So, you know, it, that's, that's like a learned thing, right? We've all had like little boom boxes or something. You turn them way up and you hear the little boom box kind of start to explode, if you will. Yeah. And like we've all kind of, you know, inherently learned that into our head that that is a feeling of intensity or a feeling of being on the edge. Mm -hmm. So that's like a thing I will try to do with certain elements during certain songs. If I want that song to feel like tense or kind of on edge, you can add some of that to kind of just make it feel like it's pushed right to the limit, even if it's not. Yeah. Right. So Yeah, in the recording world too, I mean, yeah, like, Drum distortion is, you know, it's it's everywhere. It's absolutely omnipotent, you know. Well, well, you know, as a as a nod to the recording world, you know, when we do this stuff live, if I want drums to be Im impactful, I can turn them up, right? Yeah. And I can literally make you feel the SPL, you know. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to a live stream or a recording, you can't do nope. that. Yeah. And and when you can't do that, you have to use some of these tricks to make it seem like it's on the edge or seem like it's really pushing. But you can't actually just turn it up. You, well, some of these things, it's kind of interesting. If you start doing some of these things where it feels like you're like on the edge or whatever, inherently, the moment the listener hears it, they turn it up because yeah. it feels good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, you don't have the the option of just physically increasing SPL when it's you know a live stream or a record. So you know, tricks like adding a little bit of saturation to your drums can really, really go a long way. So, are there other instruments you saturate? Bass, absolutely. Every time. No, but you know, a little a little kiss of some harmonics is is really nice and can make a little parallel. Yeah, little yeah, parallel, a little parallel. You know, um, yeah, both both you guys do that reasonably consistently. I would actually, I I, I typically would do it by just hitting a compressor hard. You know, that's my kind of like saturate. You know, the character of an eleven seventy six saturating on a bass guitar is you know that's that's something that's kind of everywhere too, and it's kind of a learned sound that is pleasing you know uh that that super fast attack you know it, it, it creates harmonic content that that can that can be great so that's a good point you know compressors right of course they control level and have this dynamic or this this time element mm -hmm. but beyond that um many of them have a saturation element too yeah so i mean i don't know T tell me something about that right so to me 
things like the 1176 and the LA-2A are kind of, uh, I don't know, famous for that that saturation element. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the heart are of- there particular ways that you use them to, uh, to kind of, you know get that saturation out of them you know i mean generally like the harder you hit them in terms of like the more gain reduction that's happening the more they're going to saturate when you Mm -hmm. when you compress any any waveform it's it's distorting that waveform somehow um when it's in that gain reduction mode so you know yeah and then the 1176 yeah yeah that attack and release time the release as well you know as as it comes off of reducing, you know, it, it can create some crazy stuff that uh, that that can be really pleasing um, on a lot of shit. Yeah, <laughs> hate to be a eleven seventy six uh, ad here, but you know, I mean, I I, well, I find just like if I just throw an LA two A like on vocals, even if it's not even compressing it that much, that it just like I don't know, it's just like. It sounds there. It is, you know, like there's the sound better. of it. Yeah, it just sounds better, even if yeah. it's the plugin on like, you know, the X32 or something like that. If you just do that, whatever so, it's modeling in the LA2A just makes it sound better. So for for both you guys, this is this is the same question. Um, what uh, what makes you decide to use? an 1176 versus an LA-2A on any given item? Like, what in your head, I know that the moment you put it on, you already have some idea of what it's going to do. So, like, Joe, you're you're an 1176 fanboy, very clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you're going to put an 1176 onto an element, what do you think it's going to change in the sound? Like, what, what do you automatically assume is most likely to happen? Because I feel like this is a thing that, you know, someone who hasn't spent this time with that tool doesn't already know. So... What do you expect to happen? I'm if I'm if I'm going for an 1186, I I typically know I know that when I put it on this and this might not even I'm not even sure if this comes down to saturation specifically, but I feel like it does have a brighter uh, uh, curve. Maybe like mm-hmm. there's some there's some top end stuff happening. I feel like for sure. So just instant kind of air, you know, 10k and plus stuff. Um, and then I, I'm. What I want to use it for a lot is is to really even something out, to really take away, or 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 shape you know that the transient like that the attack and release on it are super powerful and um, I can I can dial it, I can dial something in to get it as as impactful as exactly as impactful as I want it kind of you know mm-hmm. um, whether it be you know more or less. It's kind of like yeah. a, it's kind of like the go-to, to, bigger and um, yeah, more impactful in general. Brendan, you kind of kind of in the same boat. Should do you want me to answer for eleven seventy six or an LA two A? Sure, sure. We'll start okay. with the eleven seventy six, and we'll jump to LA. I guess when I grab the eleven seventy six, I'm usually thinking like I want more intensity and more control. I guess. Okay. Yeah. What about an LA two? LA two. I'm thinking clarity and smoothness. And Joe, a little bit more of a bounce, maybe okay. you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, a little bit rounder. Yeah, is that a, is that a, is that a cool word? No, no, no. I, you know, it's <laughs> funny. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's 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 funny to hear you guys describe this because, of course, I have some impression in my head of like, oh yeah, if I put this on, I know what it's going to do before it's going to do it, and hence me choosing it, right? Yeah, and. My impressions are like similar to your guys, but different. But of yeah. course they are, because we each have our own perception of what these things do. Right. But in terms of what we're trying to get out of the tool at the end of the day, it sounds like we're trying to get the same thing. So like, if I want something to feel more 
intense, if you will, and a little bit more forward, I will go for an 1176. Yeah. Yeah, those and, th- those are good words. Those are better words yeah. probably than I use, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that, but you know, I, I feel like maybe the upper mid-range specifically gets saturated a little bit more densely mm-hmm. with an 1176. But if I want something to feel, you know, smoother, uh, controlled, rounder, I will go for an LA-2A. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you said about bounce, I feel like the LA-2A does have this kind of like push and pull thing that you can kind of feel it breathe a little bit more. It's the slower attack and release, I, I, I yeah. think, that probably contributes yeah. to that, I would say. And there's plenty of other tools that I'm like, uh, that I have the same thing, where I go, I know if I put this tool on, it's going to do this kind of thing to my sound. And if I put this tool on, it's going to do this kind of thing to my sound. Mm-hmm. And by having this, you know, preconceived notion of what this tool generally does to stuff, it means I don't have to like fumble around and like try this compressor, then try this compressor, then try this compressor, then try this compressor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like I know which 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 color I'm pulling out of of the palette and painting it with. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's something starting out. You know, you you really don't know what does what. You hear people talk about how this is great on that, but like, what does that mean? What does that actually? What does that sound like? You know, what? How is that going to affect my mix? You know. Yeah. And, and end of the day, you know, for anybody who has not used the hell out of these tools, don't take our word for it. No, get, no. Get, get some free version of it and put it on 50 different tracks and play with the knobs and find out what you find is the same every time you use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And find out, you know, low frequency stuff going into it reacts this way, high frequency stuff into it this way, mid-range stuff this way. And once you already know what this thing's going to do before you put on the next track, that means you know it well enough that you can go use it in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I mean, uh, basically, yeah, otherwise you're guessing, you know, you're yeah. just reaching for random stuff Sometimes and hoping you get it lucky. works. Hey, I mean, like, half of learning is just trying shit and getting lucky, you know? So right. So there's that too. <laughs> and, you know, I that is that is the way to learn. Yeah. Try stuff, see what it does. Yeah. But at the same time, you're going to get to a certain point in time where, like, you, your you available time is not going to exist in, in that way, and you're going to go, I need this, and I need the tool that's going to make X do Y, yeah. and I need it right now. So you want to be able to just pull it right out and just throw it on without having to try 10 different compressors, 10 yeah. different microphones, whatever it may be. Yeah, you can't and experiment you know, all day, every day. The, par- the party's over at some point. You gotta, <laughs> and you got to go to work here, so figure it oh, out. Man. <laughs> yeah, Im- imagine if your electrician was experimenting while you know doing your house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it'll be like just a couple more hours. I just want to see uh, if this thing. I want to see if this works. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to try this thing out. Yeah. Imagine being. Yeah. That's like. I just that's wanted like... to see if 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 you wanted two twenty in this room, and yeah. then one twenty. <laughs> well, but, but we'll put it into an Edison outlet and see how this goes. Right. Right. Yeah. You sure you don't want a washing machine in here? Uh, the in the I don't know. Where's the bad place is... for it in the attic? I don't know. <laughs> oh man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think we went a little bit stupid there for yeah, a moment. Right. But the point is saturation's got a lot of uses and saturation doesn't just come from saturator plugins or saturator tools. You can also get it off, you know, driving preamps hard. You can also get it off compressors. Mm-hmm. And uh a point that I think I learned way too late is that uh when compressors are driving super duper hard, they have a different kind of or amount of saturation than when they're driving really, really lightly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just be aware of that. And um, I think for the most part, when a compressor is driving super duper hard into gain reduction, it tends to saturate more than when it's driving just a few dB. Yeah. Cool. All right. So what are some of the risks of using saturation, though? I mean, there are bad things here. True. Feedback. 
That's the oh, didn't we? Didn't we floor. do two episodes about that? Yeah, we, <laughs> we did. did. Yeah, um, when you're increasing those harmonics, you're increasing the possibility that some of those harmonics might be, you know, in in the zone of feedback. You M- might might trigger feedback loops. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you know, be careful, um, especially yeah, if you're going to do something crazy like put a put a saturator on a vocal, something nuts, <laughs> nutso like that. Yeah, like like. <laughs> Like when I was talking about saturating the entire drum bus, like you probably want to try that during sound check. Yeah, for sure. Don't just slap a saturating like a yeah. And yeah. The, don't don't just dime an eleven seventy six. Uh, do it also. Yeah. Do turn these knobs slowly when you're talking about gain <laughs> shit like that. You know, turn this shit slowly in a live sound environment. When you're you know when you're in your home studio with your headphones on, you know, blow blow your own head up. But you do not want to um, accidentally dime an eleven seventy. I, I say that because I literally did it. The first show I ever used an SC48, I had a fucking 1176 plug in on the vocal, and I had a trackpad, trackball mouse. Oh, and no. I, and during the show, I was oh. trying to just kick it up a little bit, and something happened like, I don't know, my hands slipped or something like that, and the whole fucking knob just dimed all the way at the input gain. And um, So how'd that go for you? Uh, Really shitty for a quarter of a second before I got the fader down, and then I was able to... Did you uh, keep your job? Uh, surprisingly enough, yeah. Surprisingly, <laughs> I uh, I don't know how or why, but Did, I mean, I, I imagine they knew it happened. Uh, the band, I think he didn't hear the squeal as much as he heard his vocal go away when I turned it down. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I got the squeal down relatively quick enough, though. But um, anyway, yeah. so yeah, be that's, careful. That's fun. But you know, along the lines of what you were just saying about saturation and feedback issues, um. There's a bunch of artists I've been with where, like, there's a moment on a song in the record where it's, like, ultra-distorted drums or, like, overdrive vocals, that kind of stuff. And, I mean, you're, you're dead on right. Like, anytime you're doing that, you're in pretty high-risk feedback territory. Yeah. So every time I have a scenario like that where it goes a whole drum bus into a super overdrive type um, uh thing i always have to have a finger on that fader and be ready to kind of just ride it up and down just to make sure it never ever takes off and same for vocals yeah um you know later on in kind of working through this stuff with certain artists i ended up putting the overdrive on a completely separate microphone yeah um we'd have a microphone with a super tight pickup pattern Mm -hmm. is the overdrive microphone it was also kind of cool because then the singer could use two microphones and switch between one and the other Mm -hmm. and i would just kind of be writing faders and tracking it nice rather than using the main lead vocal and having saturation turn on that main lead vocal might have quite a wide pickup pattern might be picking up a bunch of stuff you know it's a little less controlled so yeah yeah you're Um, you're bringing up the noise floor you're bringing up all the stage shit the drums and cymbals like that you know all that's going to get saturated too. So, Keep you know, s- speaking of noise floor, you know, we didn't really mention this directly when we were talking about this because, you know, again, we're talking about impact, loudness, and all that. Um, one of the things that helps me the most is keeping my signals clean. Mm-hmm. I get way more impact and loudness out of a mix if I've got, you know, good point. All, all the ch- all the channels that aren't actively playing stuff are all essentially gated or muted. Yeah, you know? good point. Um, if I've got a, if I've got like five guitar mics out, I mean, not that I'd ever have five, but like let's say four, okay, that does happen. 
and nobody's even playing guitar in this song or one guitar player is not even playing at all all that extra bleed that comes through that if that's still feeding out into my pa that's just extra crap in the mix and it's kind of adding to my overall quote-unquote level from like a metering perspective but it's not adding anything from like a impact or or loudness useful way yeah yeah you're uh you know if your noise floor is uh, ten, you know, 10 dB or something like that, and your, you know, your kick drum hits at 40 dB, instead of every time the kick hits it going from 0 to 40, it's going from 10 to 40, essentially. Right. You know, it's right. not, the the range at which it's it's changing isn't much, so the impact seems diminished. Right, and where that can get tough is, you know, uh, let's say you got five or six backing vocals on stage, and, and somehow I end up in this scenario all the time. Um, yeah, that... Those, yeah, and those those backing vocals like pick up everything, everything, and it picks it up in an unclear and messy way. Yeah. So I end up putting all the BVs onto a VCA, or I r- ride them manually, and I literally take them down to minus twenty when they're not singing, push them up for the one word they hit or two words they hit, and pull them back down. So I'm riding it the whole time, but because it's keeping the whole mix cleaner in general, everything feels like it has more impact yeah. and more clarity. You know, I'm not I'm not filling it with garbage. I'm glad you. I'm glad you added that. Yeah, we didn't talk about that before, and uh, and that's an important one for sure. Yeah. So, we had another uh, set of tools. Item. We yeah. had another item on our list. Yeah, yeah. Set of tools. There you go. So dynamic EQ and multiband compression. Yeah. This um, is this is a hot one right now. I feel like this is like in this is like the the hot topic in like the the live audio world right now and there's like yeah, new plugins and stuff like coming a, out that it's wearing like a studded belt and like a banshee <laughs> and has like a mohawk yeah like so. a pink yeah like a pink mohawk and yeah is, is that the current hot look i, I well know, he, he, said, he, said, he said it was the hot topic so oh yeah. i get it i forgot <laughs> yeah. that that shop existed yeah All yeah right. i All imagine right. a young ryan john going Ooh. into hot topic and just like a whole different look. I de- I frequently I, I, sure. I, I definitely did. Yeah. I definitely did. There's yes. not even a question. I like definitely did that. And more for like the candles and stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I th- this is yeah, this is like I, you know, I think I think it is kind of a hot topic. I think there's a lot of new plugins specifically in software and stuff coming out that's making this thing this more widely available and 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 people are kind of starting to see the benefits. Um, yeah. Okay, well... So why don't we define the two, dynamic EQ and multiband compression? What's the difference? Okay, so a multiband compressor is essentially a compressor that has a number of different bands, if you will, in the frequency space. Uh, and and those, are, those are separated by crossover points. So if you have a three-band multiband equalizer... You know, you have. You mean multiband compressor? Or sorry, multiband. Jesus. See, Screwing you're fucking it up too. God. Oh, <laughs> brain fart. Um, if you have a three-band multiband c- compressor, um, mm. you know you have you have three bands essentially from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz and two crossover points where uh, you know and the compressors will act within their within their bands. Uh, a dynamic equalizer is parametric. So, 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 just just for super duper clarity there, because you said three bands from twenty to twenty, it is that in between twenty and twenty k, you three have three ranges. separate bands. So, yeah. one of them would be, let's say, the low range, and you can set that crossover. So, let's say we set it to two hundred hertz, then that band would cover zero from to two hundred. Yeah. To, yeah, exactly. And then the next band would start at that crossover frequency, so two hundred to whatever the next crossover is. So, let's say it's five k, and then the third band is five k and up. Correct. 
and each of them have their own compressor controls the same way a normal compressor does. So they've got, you know, attack, release, threshold, makeup, gain, Ratio. all the normal compressor yeah. stuff. But it's only working on, let's say, the low range, the mid range, and the high range. And all Separately. three of them can have different thresholds. So if you wanted to, you could have it compressing the heap out of the low end, but leaving the rest alone, or vice versa, etc. Yeah. Okay. A dynamic EQ is a little more versatile in that its bands are it's it its bands are like a parametric equalizer. So it's, its bands are parametric. So there is a band with a Q, uh, in turn meaning um, a control width. Uh, yeah, exactly. It controls the width and you know from the fundamental frequency, center point. Yeah. The center point, right? Um, and then and same thing. All those have their own attack, release, threshold, makeup gain. Yeah, like so so ultimately so, the difference is yeah, that... Yeah, what's the difference? Explain. Well, a multiband um, affects a range, right? And it affects a very specific range with a bottom end and a top end mm -hmm. of each band. Yeah. Whereas a dynamic EQ has a center frequency and a width from there. So you don't actually have to affect stuff significantly below that or significantly above that. Right. Um, and also, typically, uh, dynamic EQs have more than three bands, typically. Yeah. Uh, not all of them, but, they'll but have, most of them do. They'll have shelves, too, typically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's an option as well. So, it's kind of, yeah, that's why, kind of like... So, what, what's, what's the perk of one versus the other, really, like in real-world real, real world usage? I'd say you have definitely have more control with a dynamic EQ. You can get more surgical. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, you could make the... Uh, the bandwidth of, you know, one of those bands in the multiband very narrow, you know, but then you're kind of like, you know, the ones outside of it might become a little bit less usable, you know, whereas, yeah. whereas the dynamic EQ, you have really fine control of, of each one. I would say the typical use case for these is that dynamic EQs are used on inputs, whereas multibands are used on outputs. Right, and the reason yeah. there being, that, and, and that's not a hard fast rule. I mean, you can do whatever you want, and I do use dynamic EQ on outputs, but for the most part, this is how it goes. And, and the reason why is that with the dynamic EQ, you can key in on a very specific frequency in that input signal, and you can target exactly that and have mm -hmm. it be, um, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's the proximity effect for a vocal mic. When someone gets on it, it takes out some of that low end. Maybe it's the sibilance, and that is a very specific frequency range, or maybe it is. Yeah, you can use it as a deesser. In fact, deessers for the most part are this kind of tool. Um, I say this kind of tool because it depends on which one you use. Some of them are essentially multi-band compressors. Some of them are dynamic EQs, but it's all dependent. Right. But uh, you know, you could you could key in on maybe that that ringiness in that stupid Fender amp that's on stage, and you can find exactly that frequency and make it really narrow. And every time you know that ringiness kind of starts com coming out, you can uh, pull it back. Or the resonance in an acoustic guitar. Yeah. The body of the acoustic guitar is the same size all the time, you know, on that instrument. So you can key on exactly that resonance and kind of clean it up. Uh, whereas multiband compression, since it is generally pretty wide ranges, and as you said, you know, if you're trying to use it for a narrow range, you're basically throwing away the other bands. Yeah. Um, since it's generally wide ranges, people tend to use them for outputs to say, overall, my low end, I want to kind of do this too. Overall, my mid-range, I want to do this too. Overall, my high-end, I want to do this too. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are exceptions to this. And, you know, if you have one tool and not the other, you can still kind of achieve the same type of thing. It's just, they're just different versions of the same kind of function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. tell me how this works for you uh, in terms of, like, impact and loudness. Well, 
so in the recording world, you have the luxury of automation and like clip gaining and, you know, separate tracks for different parts of the song in order to create impact. Um, where you don't you, you don't have a DAW in in live sound you, you're not able to like cut and you know you know automate as as much so this can kind of take the place um, in that so for instance um, you, you know you, you have a, a bass guitar player and you've got you get the bass to the point where it's, it's got a very nice uh, in, amount of impact and clarity and but there's just one note there's one note that when he fucking plays, it just resonates and the whole damn room shakes and it just, it takes you out of it. It like, it ruins the impact of the whole thing. Slap a dynamic EQ right on that note and literally problem solved. It's like, yeah. it's a dream. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to the vocal thing, uh, use it as a de-esser. Why not just use a de-esser then? Oh, well, I could, with a dynamic EQ, I can de-ess those frequencies but then boost them, you know, um, right. to, to kind of give it give it presence and, and crazy air that I wouldn't uh, have been able to do normally. I mean, you know, or, or to do in one tool. Or you, yeah, or or inside of that one tool, you can deal with proximity effect and de right. Exactly. Proximity effect as well. Is, right. that, is that what you're about to yeah, say, Yeah, something like that. And also, if you have, like, a super dynamic singer, like, sometimes they're singing really quiet, really but you're just getting that, right. like, proximity <laughs> <laughs> effect. That was good. Right? That was good. Whisper in my ear again, please. Ryan. <laughs> Take me to hot topic. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> um, you can get rid of that proximity effect when they're whispering, but then when they and like kind of boost the high end or the high mids, so that you have clarity, but then like get like kind of change it when they get loud. You know, it'll react exactly, to when they get exactly. loud. Yeah. The whole the whole kind of frequency response changes when they like get quiet and go close. As, as right. to when they kind of come off of it and are projecting. And if you just right. dump all that low end, then it's going to sound thin when they come off of it. But, right. you know, if you just compress it a little bit so when they go up close, it, it squashes it. And know. I guess that's the, the main difference between how you use a tool like a dynamic EQ versus a regular EQ. You know, as you just said, if you take out all the low end because sometimes they're on their mic, then when they back up off their mic... Uh, that low end still taken out if it's just a regular EQ, at which point it's too thin. Right, right. But if you use the dynamic EQ, then when they're right on top of the mic and quiet and there's a bunch of low end, mm -hmm. you can have the dynamic EQ pull that out. But the moment they back off and there isn't that much low end content, that EQ uh, backs off itself and uh, you end up with the low end back in the yeah. middle. Essentially, it's it's one step closer to automating ourselves out of a job. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, now, um, I mean, anything, you know, make your life easier. You know, like in, in back in the day, that's literally what they'd be doing. They'd be turning down. They'd be going for that EQ during that part in the song. I mean, I do like, that. And then chasing I do that still. Yeah, I was about to say. Well, I don't have they. They, I do that. Right. I do it with them even still. Shit. Dude, we can't give away all the secrets. We're all out of a job soon if we keep doing this podcast. I've been out of a job for like 14 months. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you have no hope anymore. <laughs> hey, I did see a festival listing that Mac DeMarco is on. I'm excited. We that got, we got shows coming. coming up, baby, and yeah. maybe they'll happen. Fingers crossed. Maybe you'll Man. invite me to one so I can actually hear you mix and just lean over your shoulder and go, did you mean to make it sound that way? You want to come to Atlanta? You're going to be there? Okay. Is that we'll do, we'll do a live episode on, while on. Joe's mixing, you know? Like a live yeah, critique. Yeah, yeah. We can, we we'll can have the live stream. Live critique. Right? You're gonna the audio feed, and then we'll our... just like critique as he goes. We'll kinda do like that a... mystery science theater thing or, or whatever they call it, you <laughs> <Right>. know? <laughs> I love that. That would be super funny, actually. So funny. Um, 
Where were well, okay? Oh. Dynamic EQs, multi-band compressors. So, yeah. you know, you you super briefly mentioned this. Something about dynamic EQs that's typically pretty cool is that most of them don't only do reduction. You can also boost. Yeah. So you can make it so that when a signal is below a certain level, it actually boosts that, and then the moment it goes up above that level, it actually removes that boost. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your goal is consistency, right, and you want, let's say, top end in an instrument, maybe when they're playing it really quiet, it doesn't have that top end, but then when they, you know, really slam into it, it does. The reason I use that as an example is because I do that all the time. So keys, right? When someone's playing piano quietly, it doesn't have that top end attack, mm-hmm. right? It's just kind of a softer tone overall. But I kind of build my mix around the piano cutting in the top end. So I'll take a dynamic EQ and boosts boosts that uh, upper mid range, you know, like I don't know, two to five k or something like that, when it's not there in the signal. So when they're playing quietly, I'm boosting the heck out of two to five k. Then the moment they really slam into that keyboard, it stops boosting it because it's already there in the signal. Mm-hmm. So I'm using that as a way to keep my frequency spectrum of that piano roughly the same, no matter what the dynamics of the player. And that kind of goes back to the point I made earlier about, you know, getting everything to fill in a certain space in your mix when they're playing quietly versus when they're playing hard. If the overall frequency spectrum doesn't change a ton, I have better overall control of that. And thus I have kind of, you know, kind of built built the whole mix a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And I, 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 do the sa- I do the same for snare drums too. If there's, a, you know, snare rolls and stuff, I have it boosting the heck out of top end. But then the mm-hmm. moment they're actually really digging into the snare, the, that top end boost goes away. And the idea is that, you know, snare rolls, first of all, they're literally quieter. Yeah. But, um, you know, I need that top end clarity in a snare roll to be able to hear what it is. I, it, it's not useful for a listener if it's a bunch of 200 hertz is that snare yeah. roll. Yeah. You know, they're not going to hear that it's a roll. They're just going to hear kind of a rumble. Yeah. So uh, another useful thing with achieving loudness using dynamic EQ or multiband compressors is the the key input to these things. Mm-hmm. So like right. if you put a dynamic EQ on your like your instrument bus or like on your guitar keys bus and you key it from your vocals, then every time your vocals get above a certain level, you can select different frequency ranges for your dynamic EQ dip to a dip a little bit. So that your band bus gets pushed mm-hmm. down a little bit. And it's not like yeah. it's not like compressing the whole thing. It's just taking out, you know, I don't know, like a little bit of top end and a little bit of low end so that your vocal pops. Just to make some space. Pops through vocal. a little bit more. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're back to talking about making space. Yeah. I mean, we had a whole episode about this. But, you know, it is super relevant for impact and loudness. So, you know, basically exactly what you just mentioned. Let's talk about bass and kick, right? If you turn both of them up all the time, they'll they'll be okay right but when you listen to the drums on their own they're super duper punchy you listen to bass on its own maybe it's nice and round but then when they're both together they're they're okay but the fact is they are fighting for space even if you've done some you know frequency sculpting to try and make them not you're not removing the overlap completely you're just turning it down a little bit so I will often use things like dynamic EQ or sometimes multiband compression so that every time the kick drum is hit the bass gets dropped in level only in that low frequency range yeah. by a bunch for that time yeah. period. So not only have, I, have we done EQ changes or whatever to try and make them work together, but also we're doing this kind of time-based thing so that whenever the kick hits, the kick is the important thing and the bass is pulled out of the way. Mm-hmm. The kick is not hitting, the bass gets that low end back. 
Um, and that kind of dynamic management means that you know you have a focus in any given frequency range at a time. Uh, any given yeah, time. it's a more subtle yeah, like form of side chain side chaining the kick or the base yeah. to the kick. You know, like exactly. it just yeah. it retains the top end on your base. You know, it doesn't dip the whole. Yeah, yeah. and you've got a smoother. Mix. And and and. And the truth is, like, with, with one of the bass players that I work with pretty regularly, when he kind of gets into his slap and pull stuff, on the kick hits, he tends to be doing one of those two things, either slapping or, or kind of doing the pull. At which point, I don't actually care if the low end's there because the kick is already my, my impact. But I want the high end of the note, like the actual bing, bing part, yeah. to still be there. So if I just put a compressor on there and it's side-chained off the kick, I lose the whole bass for that hit. But if I do it with a multiband or dynamic EQ, I only lose the bottom end of the bass. So you still hear the bang part that he's he's pulling or slapping on. Bang. So it's, yeah. yeah. This is an episode full of sound is effects. That, is that, that the intro to back? our podcast? <laughs> yeah. Bang. Yeah. Bang. The slap bass sound. <laughs> what were you about to say, Joe? I was going to say that for, in, in regards specifically to the bang, that's a great uh, you know zone for dynamic EQ as well. You know, you might want to mm-hmm. need to tame. It might be the opposite. You might want to tame the bang. So you gotta yeah. slap a little dynamic EQ on that, you know, like two to four K range, and because uh, it's it's hurting a little bit, you know, smooth out the bang. <laughs> you just really wanted to say that like five times, didn't you? Yeah, I want to go listen Sorry. to corn now. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's not the I'm, kind of bang I was thinking of. That's more like of. a jig jig. Yeah. 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 Or a, or a flop flop. What a unique <laughs> what a unique tone that guy had, huh? I'm amazed that you can actually tell the notes that are being played, but you actually can. It's, it's like down, whoever it's recorded that, there. I'm so surprised by their ability to make that clear. Yeah. The recording and the mixing on that on those records, it's it's impressive. It's way down there. It's low. Anyways, you know, without going um, insanely deep into some of these methods for kind of uh, achieving impact and loudness, you know, with things like limits like SPL and stuff like that. Um, I think this is a pretty good overview, and maybe we need to do a, an advanced kind of jump into some of these methods specifically. But I, I think we kind of hit all the basics, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Cool. Till next time, then, folks. Until next time. Yeah, guys, if you have keep any... It, keep it impactful. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My outro got ruined. Thanks, Joe. Um, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Find our Facebook group if you want to get in touch or email us. It's feedback at livesoundbootcamp.com. And uh, yeah, send us questions, topics you want us to cover, that kind of thing. And uh, go over and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your podcasting apps. All of them. All you of know, them. even if you're following Every us on one, follow us on all the rest of them too. All of them. Yeah, listen to each episode 19 times, please. Thanks. All right, catch you guys next time. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rational Acoustics. Visit www.rationalacoustics.com for information on sales, training, and all things system measurement.